There was a lot of transportation news this past week, although some of it was overshadowed by the ongoing battles involving ride sharing and not knowing what the mayor of Surrey was going to do. Uh, We were waiting on the report on the details of the intermunicipal license for ride sharing. So that got a lot of the attention. But something else happened this past week, which could have a big impact on a lot of people who depend on transit. The mayor's council met and approved the business case for extending SkyTrain's Expo line. But the catch is there is still not enough funding to cover the distance all the way to Langley. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Nathan Pahal, a Langley City Councillor, also an advocate for sustainable communities. Nathan, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact the business case has been approved, but we don't have the money to go all the way to Langley? Uh, Well, I think it's actually pretty exciting that the business case was approved. Um, I think uh, what this does is it confirms that the region is committed to extending that line all the way to Langley. As you may know, TransLink also prefers building it in one go. So right now there's about enough money to build it to somewhere in Fleetwood. My understanding is that the Mayor's Council representatives are actually heading out to Ottawa in the coming weeks, and they'll be making the case for the full funding I should also say that building it out to Langley is part of the full mayor's council. They're destroying the environment because... Oh, sorry about that. I'm not sure where that voice came from. Sorry about that. Nathan, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think um, we're at pretty exciting times. And I know in our community, we just signed a memo of understanding with TransLink and the mayor's council, which uh, outlines our commitment to supporting the project and uh, also the uh, upcoming operation center. So... Uh, Which all sounds great, and I think people hear that and think that's a good thing, and we're going to see more transit and more expansion. Uh, The money, though, are you concerned at all, though, about the money in that it's already, what is it, $1.6 billion for the first phase? It would need at least another $1.5 billion to get that nine kilometers to Langley. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, I I wait with much excitement for the final funding agreement, but uh, I know the federal government did commit to the Mayor's Council vision in the federal election. The provincial government affirmed that they are going to support, I believe, was it 40% of the cost or 30% of the cost. And then what really remains is for our region to figure out the gap uh, between what the province and the feds won't pay for. Uh, are you concerned if it does go to Fleetwood and stops in Fleetwood, what does that do for people as far as, uh, as does that just kind of leave everybody in that, that area? Or does it, does it still, do you think, fill a void that's much needed? Um, well, as someone who takes uh, transit on Fraser Highway every day, uh, it flows to a crawl through green timbers. So you could probably walk faster than you could drive a car or take a bus. So to be able to extend that all the way to Fleetwood actually would probably save about 30 minutes a day for me during the afternoon uh, commuting period. So um, I look forward to that, even if that's as far as it gets, but I'm about 99% confident we'll see that get all the way built to Langley uh, within the next decade. All right. And, and what do you think about the, the project itself? Do you think it gets enough attention? Because we do tend to focus a lot on the B-Line in Vancouver and getting SkyTrain uh, out to UBC. Do you think that this particular line as well gets the attention that it deserves? Well, um, I know that Vancouver is definitely the center of attention all the time. But uh, out here in the south of Fraser, the fastest growing part of the region, close to a million people live out here, which is practically, I guess, almost 40% of the population in the lower mainland. And if you look at where transit's growing the fastest, 
it's in the south of Fraser. So there's huge demand for transit here. Our region, our sub-region continues to grow uh, very fast. And I think the only way that we can get people out of that congestion is through transit. And we're seeing that TransLink just can't keep up with the amount of service that needs to be provided in the south of Fraser, Surrey, Langley, uh, Delta, and White Rock. Uh, right. I mean, it is such a vast area, and I, I, that's part of the problem or part of the issue. And those numbers, I mean, 1.6 billion, 1.5 billion, that's not a small amount of money. I, it is expensive to, to no, get transit. No, but they're building $2 billion to build a, a subway uh, underneath Broadway. They spent a billion and change to build it to the airport, and we spent probably $4 billion on bridges. So I think that the amount of value and the amount of people that are served by this uh, SkyTrain extension will uh, far outweigh uh, the amount of money we spent, say, on bridges, as an example, considering that 80% or higher the trips that take place in the south of Fraser stay within our subregion. So um, I think even TransLink business case found that the expansion of the Expo line down Fraser Highway has a similar business value to the Canada line and the uh, Evergreen extension, and we know how successful those projects have been. Uh, do you think SkyTrain is the right choice, or are we, we losing out on some opportunities by not looking more seriously at light rail or other options? Well, um, seeing how things have uh, transpired in BC over the last 35 years, every single rapid transit project started at light rail, and it changed to SkyTrain. Even the original SkyTrain line was supposed to be light rail. So at this point, I think the region wants SkyTrain, so let's just build it. <laughs> Even though it's the most expensive option. Yep. Well, I mean, again, every single project started as light rail, so um, sometimes you just can't fight that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned south of the Fraser. What about areas like Delta, like Ladner, uh, south of Tawasin, areas uh, that are still serviced mainly by the Massey Tunnel? It's a huge bottleneck. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, I mean, the, the, the latest project involves twinning the bridge, but it doesn't seem to be a big focus there. Yeah, and I, I would, I mean, I'm not the provincial government, but that is a pretty expensive project, and we're talking about the cost-benefit. Uh, that one crossing would build SkyTrain from UBC to Langley. So um, I think if I was a province, I'm probably weighing some of the costs. I know, obviously, that the Massey Tunnel is severely congested, and uh, something needs to be done there. Um, but I, I think they're probably looking at which of the transportation projects in Metro Vancouver delivers the best value and probably serves the most people. Uh, so do you think there is a way then to, uh, like you said, Vancouver tends to be a bit of the center of attention. Is there a way then to uh, go ahead with that project? Because, I mean, that's still even a, a question. Does the line in Vancouver go all the way to UBC? Does it stop at Arbutus? Um, yeah. To, to kind of balance that with what's also needed in places like Langley and Surrey and places south of the Fraser? Yeah, well, I think that the Arbutus line is full steam ahead, which is good. Um, the line to Fleetwood, no matter what happens, that's getting built. Um, my understanding is there's um, it's really important that that line gets built to Langley because without that, and I believe there's some reports about a pending operation center that needs to be built to be able to serve further expansions. You can't even build the line to UBC before it's built out to Langley. So um, I think... Um, Building this expansion of the south of Fraser is a linchpin to be able to further expand the rapid transit network in uh, the rest of the region. Because certainly it is an area there. I mean, look how long it took for the Evergreen line and the back and forth on Evergreen and getting that actually built. It is an area where people are very vehicle dependent, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, it was, and we're seeing that shift right now. Um, and I think when we're building the 
expo line extension. Um, it's going to see a uh, hit, but there's going to be uh, probably 30% of those shift, uh, trips will change over to transit. And this sounds small, but it's actually quite significant. It will actually move the mode share uh, from driving to transit by 1% just with that uh, extension. And that's pretty significant, and that can mean the difference between congestion and not congestion. So um, pretty significant stuff. Just the 1%? Yep. All it takes is that. Which which is interesting because we I think we tend to think all or nothing and that we need yeah. to build this. Everybody needs to do this or not. But you make an interesting point that it just needs a bit of a shift and and that there are people that would happily take transit given the option. Exactly. And I mean, I can see the Langley City residents for 10 square kilometers. Um, I know people just say, Nathan, when are we going to build it? I want it today. And in our community, most people, well, yeah, I would say about probably 70% of our population would be within about a 15-minute walk of the SkyTrain line. So that's going to be pretty transformational. And do you think that also then opens the door to, we often talk about in places like Tri-Cities and Langley and such, we talk about the last kilometer, and that's when ride-sharing comes into place as well, that you might be within a 15-minute walk, but you might also be a bit further that you can't walk and that that is now an option? Yeah, you bring up a really good point. So if you look at the diversity of transportation options available in Vancouver, you have um, ride share, you have ride hail, you have the Moby bike program, um, lots of ways that you can get around. Um, Because you have that high-quality transit backbone, out here in Langley right now, basically you need to have a car. So when we get SkyTrain, now people start saying, oh, well, maybe I don't need a car. And because they don't own a car, that leaves the opportunity for things like the ride hail and ride share and bike programs. So um, by building that, you actually give people more transportation options overall. So that's pretty exciting, I think. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us uh, and talking about this this morning. Yeah, no problem. There's an interesting piece. Uh, I've been uh, seeing it shared on social media. It's uh, from CBS News in the States taking a look, uh, and it's a reporter who has taken a pie and asks people to split up the pie where you think wealth is distributed in the United States. And nobody gets it right. And it's a very visual way of showing that. And in the end, you see that most of the pie goes to the top for 1% and just a few crumbs are put on the plate of the bottom, uh, the very uh, the people in the States who earn the least amount to have the lowest incomes. So it's an interesting piece. It's being shared a lot. I'm not surprised. It also has uh, interest here in Canada because in Canada, we often talk as well about wealth distribution, who owns or who has the highest amount of wealth and what does it look like? Who do we count in, say, the top 10% of income earners in this country? Well, my next guest has taken a look at that and a look at the taxes paid by the top 10% of income earners. Philip Cross joins me on the line, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start by even looking at, so when we say the top 10% of income earners in Canada, who are we talking about? Well, I think it's going to surprise a lot of your listeners to hear that we're talking about people who make as little as $96,000. Um, that's one of the problems in this country is it doesn't take a lot of income to be in the top 10%. I, and I don't think most people would say if you earn ninety-six or $100,000 that you're rich, um, so when we talk about, well, let's have the rich pay the taxes uh, to finance the programs, very quickly we end up taxing people who I think most people would agree are middle class and not rich. 
Um, and the distribution of income in this country is much different than the U.S. In the U.S., you really have to pull in a lot of money to be rich. In Canada, the bar is a lot lower. And, and interesting, and I think people would agree. So ninety-six to a thousand, a hundred thousand dollars. I think people would say that that's a good sal- salary. But I think you're right. Yeah. They would be surprised to think that that puts you into the top ten percent. Well, a lot of civil servants, for example, uh, where I worked at Sissy Canada, where I left uh, exactly eight years ago. I remember in our, our meetings, we evaluated the cost of the average employee, not the average manager. The average employee cost uh, can a hundred thousand uh, dollars. So you know, there's a lot of people in the civil service uh, that earn a hundred thousand dollars. They're comfortably upper middle class, but they're not rich. We're not talking Warren Buffett's here, and we're certainly not talking people who have the kind of incomes that if you tax them, you can pay for a lot of social programs. Uh, so talk about that, because this uh, breaks down as well. The number or the amount of income tax mm-hmm. paid by people that are in that group, in that 10%, and and looks at whether or not it makes sense. If you, if you look at how much income tax they're paying compared to what they're bringing in. Yeah. Uh, well, this 10% of people pay about 35% of all taxes. So there's two myths going around. There's one myth that these people earn so much money that that's the reason the rest of us don't have money. And then a, an additional myth is, well, okay, they they may not have a lot of money, but they don't pay taxes, and that's somehow unfair. In fact, these people pay a disproportionate amount of their income and in taxes. Um, as I say, 10%, the top 10% consistently pay uh, over half the uh, all income taxes, actually, even though they only earn about 35% of all income. So it's a myth that we don't have a progressive income tax system in this country. We do. The, the upper income people uh, pay uh, and have consistently paid over half of all taxes. So is it is it a, an issue with the system then and how people are taxed in that? Are we saying that somebody who makes, uh, we'll say, $100,000 a year, is that person paying the same tax rate as somebody like a Chip Wilson, who is a multimillionaire? Oh, no. The, our income tax system is progressive, not just between people in the bottom, for example, and, and higher incomes. But I looked at even within the top 10 percent, the income tax system is progressively uh, increases in progressivity. The people in the top percent pay more than people in the bottom 90 percent. The people in the top 5 percent pay more than than the people below them. The people in the top 1 percent and then even in the top 0, 1 percent pay more income tax. So uh, I don't know what the situation is in the U.S., but in Canada, we clearly have a progressive income tax system. If you uh, And people don't avoid paying taxes either. Uh, So that's another myth. Instead, what we end up doing is by focusing on income distributions so uh, uh, exclusively over the last 10 years, what we've ignored is the real problem for most people is our economy isn't growing. And we should be focusing on getting the economy growing again instead of trying to redistribute income. Uh, you mentioned uh, not paying taxes or avoiding taxes, because I think that's another one. There seems to be this perception that people who are rich or perceived as being rich hire the best accountants or the accountants that know how to find loopholes and avoid paying taxes. Is there any evidence of that? Very little. Uh, the one evidence there is, is in the last couple of years, after the Liberals increased the, the tax on the uh, uh, on people over $100,000, we, 
we did see that in, uh, revenues to government didn't grow. And so we don't know exactly why that's the case. It could be that people in upper incomes just said, okay, you're taking over half of my income. I'm just going to work less. That's quite possible. I know I had that reflex when uh, when my income tax bill went from past 50% of my income back in the 90s when I was working at StatCan. Uh, but it's also possible that people hired tax lawyers and started to uh, use the existing rules. They didn't you know, engage in illegal tax evasion, but they used the, elix- uh, the uh, existing rules to lower their tax bill. Whatever the answer is, the point is that the Trudeau government said, okay, we can pay for a middle tax tax cut by increasing taxes on the rich, and that didn't work. So what they ended up doing was they paid for the middle tax tax cut through higher deficits, not by getting more revenues from the rich. Uh, so does it point to then, uh, like what what you were saying then, is it sounds simple enough, it sounds like it makes sense yep. to tax uh, the people who make more money, but that doesn't actually lead to more money coming in. Right. And there's a great deal of literature from academics from the Department of Finance that says the, the key barrier is about 50%. When you start to take more than 50% of people's incomes, even Thomas Mulcair said, that is no longer taxation, that is confiscation. And when you start confiscating over half of what people earn, people start to push back. And that's when they start either working less or they move to lower tax jurisdictions or they hire more tax accountants. But uh, you can't push the tax rate much beyond 50% and not see tax revenues actually start to decline a little bit. So uh, this idea that, that, you know, there's this big pile of money there at the upper income distribution and we can just tax it to death and that'll pay for everything else. Uh, in practice, that simply hasn't worked. And in fact, just the opposite tends to happen. Right. Almost it's a disincentive. Why bother working harder and, and doing all of that if all of your money or the, that big chunk of your money is just going to be taken away? Yeah. Or why not? Why shouldn't I move and go work in the United States, for example, where there's lots of uh, states like Texas and Florida that don't even have an income tax. So uh, you give people big incentives to move at some point. Uh, do, so have there been any changes, do you think, then, or is there is there anything that, that has worked as far as changes to the tax regime, the tax, uh, the way it's done in Canada in the last few years? No, in the last few years, because of we've imported this, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street rhetoric from the United States and this obsession with what the one percent are doing. So, as I, as I said earlier, we've really been focused on redistributing the existing pie instead of trying to grow the pie. And I think the the real lesson that comes out of this is over the last decade, we've had the worst economic performance this country's ever had since the 1930s as a result of this focus on distribution. We need to stop pretending that we can make ourselves rich by redistributing incomes. The best way to to grow uh, people's incomes is to grow the economy. And we have to get back to focusing on those things that grow to the economy, such as uh, more investment, um, less regulation, things like that. All right. Uh, Philip Cross, we'll leave it there. We are out of time. But thank you so much for joining the show, for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the first death linked 
to coronavirus outside of China has been confirmed. It is a man who had the virus and passed away in the Philippines. So we're seeing more countries now stopping flights from China as the World Health Organization tries to get a better handle on this. But we're also seeing a lot of myths and a lot of wrong information being shared about the disease and how the virus itself can spread. So let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Curious Cast Super Awesome Science Show, also an infectious disease expert. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be joining you. What would you say are the top things that are being put out there that is just, just misinformation about how this virus is spreading? Uh, well, well, let's first off uh, talk about the guy in the Philippines. Um, he had influenza and bacterial pneumonia, so he was in a very, very bad position to begin with. And unfortunately, uh, he got the coronavirus. So, of course, now everyone's saying he died of coronavirus. He probably would have died of the uh, influenza. So um, that one is still sort of a we're not sure. As for the misinformation that's out there, um, I'm seeing some very interesting stories about how uh, this is a government-sponsored bioweapon. Um, that's nonsense, because if you look at the sequence, uh, there's no way humans in their right mind would ever make something like this. Uh, I'm hearing about the fact that, um, you know, it, it's specifically limited to anybody who happens to be uh, Chinese. Uh, that's also, um, you know, not, not true at all, simply because you have to be, you know, inoculated with the virus in order to be infectious. Uh, this whole idea of wearing masks everywhere you go, well, unless you happen to be around someone who happens to be infectious with the coronavirus and happens to be within six feet of you, you have no reason to be wearing a mask. So those are the big ones at the moment. Um, we're suffering, you know, it's funny, everyone was worried about, you know, the, the World Health Organization calling it a pandemic, uh, public health emergency. Well, now that it has, we're suffering what's now being called an infodemic, where we're being essentially saturated with all sorts of data and information that, for the most part, makes absolutely no sense. Which is unfortunate because that can lead to hysteria or it can lead to people, again, maybe being panicked when they shouldn't be. So what do we know? How close do you have to be to somebody or what what would put somebody at risk of getting this? So you have to be within two meters, six feet of any individual. Um, but here's the thing. That person has to be very, very sick for you to be within that distance. Normally, you have to be within what I call kissing distance because this virus doesn't do the same thing as the common cold or the flu where it gets into you know, your nose and then your upper respiratory tract and then goes down into your lower. This has to go sort of into your lower respiratory tract. And it's very difficult for droplets and other sort of biological fluids to get down there. We have natural filters to prevent that. So you have to be very close to someone. They have to be sort of coughing, sputtering, almost practically in your face. And then you have to be inhaling at the same time, allowing for it to get into your lower respiratory tract. Now, while that may seem really difficult, in a place where you have high population density, such as you do in certain areas of China, it's going to be very easy to be within that distance. And if people are not following the proper hygiene, uh, essentially, you know, coughing into their uh, elbows or uh, covering their, their noses and mouths whenever someone else is coughing around them, usually scarves are perfect for that, then you're going to have a higher level of transmission. Here in Canada, eh, probably not so much. Exactly. People are concerned, though. I'm seeing people uh, raise concerns saying that uh, somebody could be contagious when they're not showing any symptoms. That's actually uh, true, but that's true with pretty much any other virus. And uh, again, we've seen this happening uh, one or two times where 
you have someone who's sort of incubating, and then as they're incubating, they're also developing uh, more and more virus and enough to be able to infect somebody else. What's interesting is that the, the big case that everyone's talking about in Germany, uh, the woman actually was in the later stages of the development. Everybody is talking about how she spread it while she didn't show symptoms. Well, she showed symptoms like 18 hours later. So it wasn't that, you know, she had come into contact with the virus and immediately spread it. It had already been incubating in her body for a number of days, and she was almost ready to start showing symptoms when she actually passed this on. So, again, it's one of those things where if you don't understand the, uh, the sort of the inoculation phase, which is before you get symptoms, then your immune system figures it out and says, hey, we've got a fight where you get your symptoms, and then the big fight rages on where you feel you know, kind of crummy, uh, it, it's very difficult for anyone to sort of uh, appreciate how transmission can happen in that what we call pre-symptomatic stage. Uh, so do you think it's a good move then that we're seeing uh, certain countries, the uh, U.S., Australia, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, saying they're not allowing people who have traveled from or through China to enter those countries uh, as a way to try and contain this? Uh, I, I would actually just defer that to the World Health Organization, who basically said no. Uh, there's absolutely no reason for anything like this to be happening. Um, and here's the thing. Um, other than that uh, um, Philippines death, which is still under controversy, uh, we've had uh, over 100 different cases all over the world outside of China from people who weren't necessarily Chinese um, and, and, or from the Wuhan region. Uh, how many of them have died? Zero. How many of them have had serious infections? Zero. This thing looks like it's probably going to be um, more or less a relatively mild illness, except for maybe in that area of uh, China. Now, why is that? Well, there are some biology uh, components that could be involved. Uh, We need to look at the immune systems of some of those infected people to get a better idea. But this this is something we've seen before. And uh, whenever you hear of clusters of, of serious infection, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, we've, we've even had this happen here in Canada with a, another virus called the res- respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. Um, there are clusters in Canada where we've had very, very serious infections, whereas for the most part, it's not really that big of a deal. Hmm. So, so what do we do then as, as we continue? I think China has now said that their first hospital that they built is up and running. Uh, do we wait and hope that that gets things under control? Or, or what, what, what is the advice then for people that are concerned about this? Well, here's the thing I find interesting. When you're coming back from uh, China, they want you to self-quarantine for 14 days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, China quarantined itself for 14 days, but we didn't wait 14 days in order for us to figure out what was going on. And instead, all of this sort of announcements of, of canceling flights and, and, and public health emergencies and all of this happened in that 14-day period. Uh, Wednesday of this week is going to be 14 days, and we're going to have a good understanding as to how that self-quarantine has done for China, because theoretically, well, actually, we're seeing it. We haven't seen any new cases outside of China uh, in the last day or so. We probably are not going to see more cases outside of China. And as for in China, we're going to start seeing a reduction in the number of people who are infected and who are died. Now, is that due to the fact that they have prefabricated hospitals? Probably not. It's just the way that the virus burns itself out. But the fact is, is China had to do something. And when they did that with SARS, it really made them, you know, it, it really helped to improve the, uh, the morale of the people. So I understand why they're doing it. I just don't know if it's a necessary thing to do. 
All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Jason, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, thank it was a pleasure. Well, Vancouver's mayor wrote a piece in the Vancouver Sun about co-ops and saying that the city is not only going to preserve the co-ops that already exist, but they want to expand on that model and build more of them. Well, let's bring in Patrick Condon. He's an urban designer, a planner, also a professor at the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Patrick, great to have you back on the program. Great to be here, Jill. What do you think about co-ops first, as far as uh, they were first started, I think, in the 1960s? Are they a valuable part of the housing puzzle? They absolutely are, and it's great to see that the mayor has come around to that point of view after his his strong support for market rate rentals, which I I have opposed because they're not not affordable. So the co-op strategy, which... Uh, of course, we know very well from what goes on at uh, Foss Creek South is a way to ensure affordability forever and uh, to make sure that people can afford to live in this city. And when you're talking about Falls Creek South, are you talking about all the, the, the city leased land that's kind of along the water, kind of the other side of Granville Island? Absolutely. That's it. Uh, now, is that affordable, though? Because those are those are areas where it, when you see places come up for sale, it's leasehold land, but the places still go for about, they can go from anywhere at 900 to a million dollars. Well, <clears throat> there are uh, there are three kinds of housing down at that in that area. One is uh, social housing units for people who are disabled. The second is co-ops. And the third is market rate condominiums. Uh, on leased land. And in the latter category, they tend to go at a somewhat lower price because they're on leased land than, uh, than uh, con- the equivalent condominium, you know, across the street on uh, freehold land. But the important thing is that two-thirds of, two-thirds of the housing down there is affordable. And so why did we stop? Is it because the federal government stopped doing it, or why did we stop building them? We stopped building them because in Canada and North America and really Europe as well, uh, the confidence was lost in the, in the necessity of the government to participate in creating affordable housing in the 1990s. Uh, when, uh, you know, some people call that the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, where the assumption was that the market can do a much better job of supplying everything and housing is of an important aspect of everything. And that, I have to admit, that kind of worked for a while in the city of Vancouver. But now that land costs have gone stratospheric, my friends in the development commu- community uh, tell me that uh, even if they had free land, they couldn't build a building with affordable rentals for the average wage earners. At the same time that land costs have gone stratospheric, uh, uh, the the uh, the wages have stayed uh, absolutely flat for thirty or forty years now. So the disparity between wages and the cost of land is really what's the driver here. All right, you so, make an interesting. Oh, let me just interject. Yep. Uh, so so the co-op option allows a way to get around this problem, and the city needs to be able to per- participate in that to establish. Uh, a housing inventory, uh, you know, a number of housing units that are affordable based on people's people's incomes. Not too many people in the city of Vancouver know that 15% of our housing is already non-market housing. So the, 
the opportunity is there to expand that. And if we don't expand that, our work our workforces are going to be not able to live in this city anymore. Uh, so when we're talking about that, though, so because it's two different, there's the, the current co-ops that are on city land on the leases. So the mayor is saying that they will preserve those leases. So anybody that's stressing out that the lease is about to expire in the coming years, uh, they don't have to worry about that. That's one thing. But how do you do it then? Like you said, even developers say if the land was free, you can't build it and make it affordable for people. So somebody has to pay for that. How does that model work, even if the city is dealing with land it already owns? Um, well, two things to say to that, Joe. Uh, the the community down there at uh, Falls Creek South has put forth a plan to essentially double the amount of square footage of co-op housing down there. So since that land is already owned by the city, that would be one means of doing it. And there are other co-ops around the city that that, that could be expanded as well. And all that land is owned by nonprofit organizations and or the city. That's one side of the equation. The other one that I've been advancing is that the development cost charges on our market housing, which are as much as $350 per square foot, uh, could be allocated to both acquiring additional land and supporting the construction costs for those for those new new co-ops. We have we have billions and billions and billions of dollars flowing in here. And most of that value goes right goes to land speculators, and uh, that that seems like a good place to start in terms of figuring out a taxing and development strategy that could could uh, capture some of that increased land value when the city upzones an area and and stream it towards towards non market housing in the form of co ops. So is it oversimplifying to say then if you were to reduce the development cost charges, would that not lead to the market housing becoming more affordable? No, that does not, because all that all that does is increases the the money in the pocket of the landowner. If you do that, it's the cost of the final product, which is about twelve hundred dollars per per built square foot here. That is the market, and 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 uh, and if you reduce the taxes, the development taxes on it, all that happens is the residual value of the land increases. So the it's it's it may be counterintuitive, but but the proper process that the city has been using for, for really decades here is in the form of development cost levies and uh, community amenity contributions is to when they're in the, when they're in the mode to rezone an area. This is what we do all the time. It's just that we don't stream that money towards uh, non-market housing. When the city rezones a particular parcel, it can, it can increase in value by 10 times if the density is increased by 10 times. And the, the city has always had a target, although recently they've failed to, to achieve it, of capturing 80% of the lift value, what they call the lift value, in quotes, which is the, the change in the land value that that uh, it accrues when, uh, when that land is rezoned. Of course, it gets more valuable. Right. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask before uh, I let you go, the 30% rate, uh, the mayor has also said that no future co-op residents would pay more than 30% of their income in rent. Uh, do we look at that number? I mean, does that not have to take into account utilities and other expenses before we set those numbers? Well, that's been the standard North America wide. It's a, it's a kind of common standard. And there are nuances around it. Does that does that include the utilities? But essentially, what you're saying is that, as as a matter of national policy, we would 
our target is that people should be able to afford a decent place to live by 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 spending 30 percent of their income and no more for that and and for, for quite a while that has worked but in the case of vancouver many people now are spending over 50 percent of their income on uh, housing and that that that's considered to be precarious a precarious housing situation and that more and more of our people are are uh, experiencing housing stress so the 30 percent that he's referring to it is is that standard and in the case of co-op housing what the public doesn't really understand is this is not subsidized housing uh, under under ordinary circumstances that 30 percent of your income will pay for the will pay for the uh, building and it will pay uh, city taxes as well so all the people who live currently in co-op housing down in uh False Creek South, of course, have paid off the paid off the. They themselves have paid off the construction loans on those buildings, and they pay taxes to the city just like anybody else. Right. The the big thing that happens here is that the uh, the inflation of land of land value underneath those homes is mitigated. That's what makes it a reasonable strategy and one that doesn't require taxpayer assistance necessarily. All right. Well, we will leave it there, uh, Patrick. Always good to chat with you. Thank you so yeah, much sure, for coming yeah. on the show. Okay, bye-bye. This past week on Wednesday, we got word from the Coquitlam RCMP that charges had been laid in a case involving what initially came across as a sudden death. Three charges have now been laid in connection to that death in October of 2018. And what makes it a bit unusual is that a society has been charged because the person who died, a woman by the name of Florence Gerard, was in the care of a woman. She lived in this woman's home, I think, for about 10 years. But the woman and the society, the Kinsight Community Society of Coquitlam, which is a nonprofit group, are now facing these charges. So for a couple of reasons. One, it's unusual to see a society charged, but also this case is raising a lot of questions about how this woman died, what led to the sudden death, and what can be done in the future to prevent something like this from happening again. Joining me on the line is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Senior Advocate. Isabel, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, You're welcome, Jill. Uh, This case is getting a lot of attention, which is a good thing. But uh, unfortunately, it's because it is a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching case of a woman, a 54-year-old Florence Gerard, who was in care, lived in this this home, and, and died of starvation. Yes. Now, I don't want to get into the specifics of this case. It doesn't, uh, it's, it's very different circumstances than what you might find uh, in a long-term care home uh, where we traditionally see seniors. But I think what's important is to look at what are the safeguards under regulation and licensing that we have in place for people whose loved ones, whose moms and dads or grandma and granddads or their spouse are, are in a care home in BC. Um, and, it, and it's a bit different than the circumstances of this woman who was in a family home and, and the uh, regulations that apply are different. But I think what's important for people to have some confidence in when their loved one is in a, a licensed uh, long-term care home NBC is the regulations that we have in place. And we do have quite a bit of uh, regulation around nutrition, around weights, around changes in weights uh, that we are to be recording that if an operator is following the regulations appropriately, and most operators do, 
uh, they would be able to see the kind of weight loss that I understand this woman was experiencing. So are the rules different then? Because that's, I think, what people, anybody that has a loved one that's in care would think of. Surely somebody is watching this and keeping track of any changes. Are those rules the same no matter what type of care you're in? Uh, Not necessarily. And again, I don't want to get into the specifics of the uh, case of the 54-year-old woman who was under a different uh, program than what seniors would be under when they go into what we think of as a licensed long-term care home, which is not in a person's home. Uh, it is in a, in a building that is uh, inspected and licensed uh, under the Community Care Assisted Living Act. Uh, there are regulations, there are charting, um, there are assessments, because the people in um, long-term care homes in BC are there uh, mostly because of a physical um, uh, disability or a physical frailty, often combined with uh, cognitive frailty. That was not the the, the woman um, in Coquitlam was. I believe she was a, an adult with developmental uh, delay and is a different kind of resident or client than we would normally see. So when you go into a long-term care home in BC under the regulations, uh, I'll talk about the weight for, you know, we, we do, uh, we do weigh residents, uh, we do chart the weights, uh, we should be weighing residents on a monthly basis, and a 10% variation in weight, uh, should trigger, uh, a significant investigation as to why that change in weight. Weight gains can signal um, advancing congestive heart failure, for example. It could be related to edema. And, of course, weight loss can be attributed to um, residents are not eating properly or there's some other issue going on that is causing the weight loss. And do you are you confident then in those scenarios that the checks and balances are in place and that is followed? Well... Uh, we certainly have the, the, a very um, prescriptive regulatory regime around uh, the, the care, especially around weight and um, nutrition to some extent. But, Jill, the challenge is always how do we know the regulations are being followed? And um, for the, I, I do believe for the most part, most operators most of the time are following regulatory requirements. But they, I think we would be naive to think that every operator is following the regulatory requirements all of the time. We do have a licensing uh, system in British Columbia where licensing inspectors will go to care homes, uh, but it's under a lot of strain, uh, and I believe it's under-resourced. Uh, we do annual uh, visits to care homes, uh, but we don't actually get to every care home. Um, we do follow up on uh, complaints to licensing that would trigger a licensing um, uh, investigation into the complaint. Uh, we uh, certainly have critical incident reporting, some of which triggers licensing, some of which doesn't. Uh, so we again, it's uh, most of the time I do believe we're getting it uh, right, but some of the time we aren't. 
And I would imagine, too, there are other reasons. Like you said, if there's a a change of more than 10% in weight, either weight loss or weight gain, uh, I would imagine, is it most critical when somebody first goes into long-term care? Because you could be dealing with depression. You could be dealing with somebody being very upset that it's a change of scenery. Uh, Maybe somebody with some kind of cognitive issues that they don't know exactly where they are or why they're in this place. I mean, there could be any number of factors that lead to weight loss or weight gain. There could be, um, but again, and, and certainly for some people, uh, weight loss of 10% is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, and it could be that they're just simply now getting regularized meals and the amount of um, uh, good nutrition has resulted in what is a healthy weight loss. So the weight gain and loss in and of itself is not necessarily uh, criti- critical. Uh, recording it is and finding out the reasons why is critical. Uh, We do know that when we surveyed uh, residents in care homes and their loved ones, we did a very comprehensive survey a couple of years ago. We had about 20,000 people answer the survey. One of the things that was identified by both residents and their family members was they did not get sufficient help to eat in the care home um, when they needed it. And so we want to be very careful that we're not seeing people experiencing weight loss, not because they don't want to eat, but because they have difficulty eating without assistance, and that assistance is not there on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so, and what what's the remedy then? Because I mean, it would it would sound like the the obvious one would be to hire more staff and to better better staff them. But we know as well that there there's often shortages in care workers or difficulty finding care workers to to fill those gaps. Well, it. Um, I think there's a few things. I think um, we uh, need to step up our 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 licensing. I think it's uh, under resourced. I think we have. Uh, strong regulations in some areas. I think our regulations need to be strengthened in other areas, but we do have a lot of regulations. But they become meaningless if there's no uh, uh, robust monitoring and enforcing of those regulations, and I think that piece is not as strong as it could be. I think on the staffing side, I think um, we need to uh, carefully assess uh, the difference between care hours that are funded to an operator care hours that are actually delivered by that operator. And I think we need to look at what are uh, what is driving some of the, the uh, staffing issues that we're seeing within our contracted care sector. We, uh, this office has been looking at this issue. We have uh, been finding, for example, wide variations of um, wage rates within the same classification of care staff. And, you know, one has to wonder whether that's having an impact that, you know, operators who are paying the lower wages are having more difficulty than those paying the higher wages. And there's some evidence to support that the better paid uh, wage uh, care homes are not having the degree of difficulty the lower wage paying ones are. So, you know, we need to be we need to be very careful, I think, uh, that we don't just dismiss issues with, uh, well, uh, you know, we, nobody can find any staffing. We're having a staffing crisis, which, which may be true in certain circumstances, but I don't think is true in all circumstances. And we need to be careful that we don't uh, inadvertently uh, not address the root cause of some of these issues. 
Absolutely. Um, when people look at this case, and I know not to get into the details of this case, but we are living in in a in a place now. I think where people are trying to stay home if they can. Uh, people are looking at ways of assisted care at home or in ways that maybe can can give you a bit more time before going into long term care. But people are going to see this story and hear the story and think, well, if that's something that can happen in a home care setting, uh, have concerns or have legitimate uh, um, concerns about their loved ones being being in any kind of care model. Uh, yes, and I don't know how we address that and say to people, fear not, nothing is ever, bad is ever going to happen. Um, life is fraught with risk. Um, and living independently comes with risk. Now, this woman was not living independently. Uh, this woman was living uh, in an environment where somebody uh, was taking care of her. So it's not the same as a senior who wants to live at home and have home care come in. That was not the situation here. Um, and it is not the same as a licensed long-term care home which does have more robust uh, regulatory oversight, but it could still happen. There are certainly examples in uh, licensed care homes, and I think we've all heard of examples in British Columbia, and there certainly was the example in Alberta recently of someone in a licensed nursing home who, when they went to the hospital, was suffering from severe dehydration, which shouldn't happen to anybody in a licensed care home um, because hydration is, is something we should be very aware of and is very easy to remedy. But I think um, when people are worried about their loved ones, there's no substitute, Jill, for um, sons and daughters and grandchildren and spouses to use their own eyes and ears to see what's going on and to not, my advice is don't doubt yourself. If you think something isn't looking right, uh, continue to pursue that. And if you're not getting the uh, attention you think you should be getting about the issue, if you're not getting the resolution you think you should be getting, don't end there. Keep the, keep pushing it up through the system, through uh, whether it's you know up through uh, channels of management in the care home, over to licensing, over to health authority PCQO. Uh, if you if you do not think that your loved one is getting the care and attention they should be, uh, don't stop just because somebody says, "Oh no, that's the best we can do." All right. Uh, Very good advice. And we will have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you very much.